Well, good morning. I think there's going to be soprano saxophones in heaven, Sammy. That was awesome, man. Thank you. Thankful for all you guys. This morning, I want to invite you to open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1, and we are looking at salvation. It's the core of what we believe as God's people is that we have been saved. We just sang about it, but what is the real essence of our salvation? Because there's some false gospels that go around today about what it means to truly be saved and what the saved life looks like. And so it's good for us to return to passages like this that really remind us of what is the core of our salvation and what is it that we have as real living hope in this life when we go through trials of various sorts. Now, before we get started, I wanna acknowledge the presence in this room of a very special group, and that is our first graders. If you're a first grader in this room, and this is your first time in big church, as I called it growing up, I want you to lift up your hands and kind of wave them like this so we can see where you are. All right. It is so great to have these guys. So let's, let's talk a little bit, okay, church, as we get started with this. We, we, for a long season, had a time where kids first through about fifth grade during this time would leave the service, okay? And that was a, an intentional time to kind of keep those kids engaged in some ways and to, and to do some things. But as I've looked at really the data, like what, what do the studies show about how do we best form the spiritual, do the spiritual formation of our children so that when they get to college, they do not depart from the faith because right now, four out of five kids in the faith are walking away from their faith during their college years. So it's a big, big problem. And so we have to look and say, what helps prepare a child and then a teenager to walk with the Lord into adulthood? And one of the statistics is that sitting with your family starting at an early age, like kindergarten, first grade, in corporate worship has a big impact on your spiritual formation going forward. And so to the degree that we can help shape and condition our faith family for our children, because none of us are doing this with the hope that when our kids get to college, they're just gonna walk away from the faith. Nobody's here with that hope. So how can we kind of do things that's one of the ways that we're gonna try. We are open to the feedback from parents. You have a say in these sort of things, but for a season, we wanna walk this way and, and really look at the results that we're seeing in our faith. And you have, my commitment is the pastor of the church to try to engage our kids a little better than I have in the past during my sermons, okay? Of trying to keep them engaged and of like even like, you know, asking them some questions and getting them involved. But here's where I need your help. There's this thing called the evil eye. You know, the evil eye, if you've ever gotten it. Um, it's that stare of, you know, like, you should not be doing this, and I really despise that you're in this room right now. Let's make an agreement with each other. Let's not give any of the parents with first graders in this room or any other kids the evil eye while we're in here because a first grader's gonna wiggle, and they're gonna make some noise, and they're gonna ask some questions, and need to go to the bathroom more than once, and all those things. So let's uh, not give the evil eye to each other because it's already hard enough for those parents or first graders, am I right? All right, so, and our family is one of those because we're right here on the road. Pete gave me a hearty amen over here. And so anyway, but church family, we are, I mean, we want to see our children know the Lord. And you're in this room right now because you want to draw near to the Lord. We are taking our faith seriously. 
gone are the days when there was just the cultural Christianity where you just did church because, well, that's what you do. Those days are dead. And you are here now because you love the Lord and you're wanting to orient your lives and your families to the Lord. And so to the Lord we go in his word. To set up the passage today, I wanna share about something that excited me greatly this week. One of our members called, who's a professional working in his career and interacts with, with clients, with people in his life. And this member has developed a reputation of being a, a man of God. He called and he said, you know, I don't, I don't understand why they're, you know, saying like, go, go talk to this person. He's, he's a man of God. He's like, I'm just, uh, and then fill in the blank with his occupation. But because of his reputation as one who loves the Lord, a family that's going through a crisis, facing death, wanted to speak with him and to know what it is that he believes. And this person in his professional space was being sought out in order to deliver the gospel to someone in crisis. And because of that, this family is hearing what it means to truly know the Lord, what it truly means to be saved. And that's you. That's you, First Baptist New Orleans, on mission. But you know what? what? What is it when we talk about salvation that we're communicating to someone? I mean, what if someone in your professional space where you work reached out to you and said, you know, I've known this for a while about you. You're, you're a religious person. Maybe that's how they would say it because they don't really know what else to say, but you're a religious person and I, I've, I've seen that about you. And, can, and you know, going through this difficulty, can you give me any guidance? You know, like, do I just need to attend church? Do I just need to like volunteer more? Like, what is it that is about being saved? Like, what is, what is this all about? In God's word today, I wanna to invite you to stand for the reading of God's word. I want you to hear how God defines this thing called salvation that you and I are living in and pursuing. To hear the word of the Lord, beginning in verse three, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. You are being guarded by God's power through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Will you pray with me? Father, this morning as we pursue a better understanding of salvation, of really reclaiming salvation so that we can hold it out in New Orleans and all nations, would you speak to us today by your word? It's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. You can be seated. God's mercy, God's salvation has granted us new birth. This was the question that was, that was being sought and understanding to by Nicodemus. If you turn back over in the Gospel of John, he comes to him by night and this man, a Pharisee, very learned, educated, a religious man, comes to Jesus and says, how can a man enter the kingdom of God? And Jesus says to him, a man must be born again. A man must be born again. And it seems that I, that idea pierced Peter's mind and it was something that impacted him deeply as to what it meant to be a saved or a born again person. 
was this idea of new life, new life invading into our existence. But what does that mean? What does it mean to have new birth, to be born again? Well, today what I want us to do is just to walk through the passage and to see how Peter gives parameters to this. Because you and I, at times, can be creative in our thinking. We can begin to think about, well, you know, just like a baby is born, then you're born this way, and and we can begin to make parallels. And sometimes we can go a little outside the biblical lines in our creativity. But Scripture gives us clear understanding of exactly what this means. What are the, the, what is the scope of this new birth that we are to understand that's going to change our lives? Because I want to remind you, the context of this is Peter writing to a people like yourself where it was not cultural any longer to be a Christian. In fact, it had never been cultural in Peter's day. Christianity was a new religion, but there were religions that existed. And Christianity wasn't one of the popular ones. And it was costing people their jobs, and it was costing them their homes, and it was costing them their reputations and different things. They were being poorly thought of because of their commitment to Jesus Christ. And you may say, I can resonate with that, that by identifying as a Christian, it's costing me in the workplace. It's costing me in my family relationships. It's costing me because I believe what the Bible says about specific things, about marriage or about human sexuality, these kind of categories, I'm saying, well, I just, I just believe what the Bible says about these things, and it is costing me dearly. Take heart that what Peter is saying to you and to the original audience then was meant to give them encouragement. It was meant to give them strength. They were supposed to be able to stand a little firmer after reading this letter. And so it is for you and I today that our feet will hopefully be a little bit firmer in Christ by the end of this message. So what are we given new birth into? Well, there's two things that Peter identifies. That this new birth is ushering your existence into something new. And you say, well, you just mean spiritually. No, bodily also. You are body and soul. You don't go home at the end of the day and your soul leave your body and go to another part of the house while your body is somewhere else. Now, your spouse may question that as you sit there vegging in front of the TV, you know, like, is this a corpse? You know, hello, you know, those kind of things. But the reality is we are inseparable in these ways during this existence called life. We are body and soul. And so this new birth that has been given to us is not to be thought of just in spiritual terms. That, oh, I have a spiritual relationship, but it doesn't really matter what I do with my body. I can gratify the flesh. I can, you know, I can use the flesh to, to, to get ahead and to hurt people and do those things. No, that is no part of a biblical Christianity. We, body and soul, have entered into a new existence with God. A new birth has been given to you, and that is changing everything about how you live this life in the body. So what are the two aspects of our new birth? Well, first of all, what the scripture says is this. He's given us new birth, look at it in verse three, into a living hope. So into hope. Hope is the main idea here. And what Peter is setting in contrast by using the word living hope is what would be contrasted with what would be called a dead hope, a a futile hope, the hope that so many people in the culture in Peter's day were holding on to. But just like in Peter's day, so is it in our day, that there was this idea, this Greek thought that was was prevalent in the culture that basically said, you know, there's really no purpose to existence. 
I mean, existence is what we make of it. There's really no point to this life. And I just want you to think for a second, when you have that sort of existential thoughts going on about what is the point? What, like, who cares? Existence is what we make. All of those sort of thoughts, and it ultimately ends you to like, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. You're this far away from something called suicide. And before you think, well, that was back then, according to the CDC, the second leading cause of death in people 10 to 34 today is suicide. That's our young people, our teenagers in the room. Suicide is a thought that Satan wants to plant in your mind. He's gonna do it through the means of what you take in, of people contemplating and considering that life is really not worth living. And so I want to encourage us today that this message is very relevant for us now because those sort of thoughts do creep in. Those sort of thoughts are pervading in the lives of our teenagers, especially our teenage girls. The statistics are the highest in that range for suicidal ideation of self-harm and of attempts and success on taking one's life. It's a crisis. It's a real It's a real and present danger in our lives today. So does this gospel make any difference? You see, it's the fifth leading cause of people 35 to 54. And so to all of us in the room today, this is something that we need to think about because we have someone in that category and to them, we need to hold out this good news of new birth into a living hope, not a dead hope. So what are practical steps though for us as the church in order to prevent something like suicide? Because the prevalent thought today, even in our own culture, is that existence is what you make of it. And I wanna talk about just for a moment about the, the category or the area of sexuality. That because of that philosophy or that worldview of thinking that we just make up our existence, then something like gender isn't fixed either. Gender is what you make of it. Or if you don't want to have a gender, then you don't have to have a gender. Gender is a social construct. It's something that humans made up in order to try to divide power. Men in power, women being oppressed. And so therefore, we're better when we rid ourselves of it. And so what's the result of that? The suicide rate among those who go through gender-changing or gender-conforming hormone treatment and those things is the highest among teenagers. We need to look at the statistics. We need to allow ourselves to have honest conversations about where do these worldview ideas take us ultimately? They are doing harm. They are harming us when we accept them and receive them as a functional worldview. But to us in this moment, Jesus steps forward And before you look at the cross of Christ and you say, well, in some ways, Jesus committed suicide. No, Jesus didn't commit suicide. Jesus stepped in front of the bullet of God's wrath that was headed straight for you. And he took it in order to save your life for all of eternity. That's the good news of the gospel. Jesus willingly laid down his life in order to save you and me from an eternity of separation from God in a place called hell. 
And he gives to us the gift of his own righteousness in order that we might have a living hope in this life because our hope is built on a person and not on an idea. It's always hard to get those words right, an idea. You see, Jesus is not a philosophy. He's not a philosophy. He's not an idea. He's not something that some guy in an ivory tower came up with as a paradigm for you and me to live good moral lives. Jesus is a person, a real living person. And that's what is proclaimed right here into a living hope. How? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You see, the culture right now is saying, kill yourself. Jesus is saying, I already died for you. I've already defeated death, so you don't have to die. You don't have to take your life. Don't believe that. I died for you to give you life, to give you a living hope. And that living hope is an eternal existing relationship with myself. And how? How then? Because we don't see Jesus. We know that from the text, he went into heaven 40 days after his resurrection. So how do we have this meaningful relationship with Jesus Christ today? It is through the gift of his Holy Spirit. Now understand some things about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not a force. It's not this, it's not this essence that goes around or this, you know, like kind of force field of protection that we put around ourselves. The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He is to be understood as a person who is coexistent with God, sharing all of the divinity of God, but distinct from the Father and the Son. We're to understand his role in our life as saving us sanctifying us. And that's what Peter opens up with, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit. The Spirit is saving us. The Spirit is protecting us from death and from the philosophies of our world that lead us to want to take our own lives. That's what Jesus is doing in this moment. And so to our teenagers, to our young adults in this room, I say to you, there is good news of living hope for you today. And I warn you, teenagers and young adults in this room today, that there is a lie that is very prevalent in this moment in history, and it's that your life is not worth living, or that you will be free if you'll take your life. And that is the, the utterance, that is the whisper of the evil one who came to steal, kill, and destroy. So please, please, please see the relevance of this idea, this good news that we have been given new birth into a living hope. But what does it look like practically? Catherine Butler, who herself was someone, a believer who struggled with suicidal ideation as an adult, she encourages us as the people of God because mental health crises are real. And we as the people of God need to be there for one another and not isolate someone further in their moment of distress. And so what she says is this, there's several ways you can help. Number one, stay connected, stay connected. You know, this is the importance of our Bible study ministry in some part. It's not just about acquiring additional knowledge after or before the sermon. Instead, these are contexts where we can have relationship and connection with one another so that we stay in touch with each other. So we pray for each other so we can reach out to one another. Recognize the warning signs, she says. 
reckless behavior, social withdrawal. Sometimes when we look at a person, we say, man, they haven't been in a while. They must be drifting away. What if you saw somebody, you saw the name of someone you haven't seen in a long time at church and you said, I wonder if they're okay. I wonder if my phone call would, would reach out to them. You see, I'll never forget the story of a professor whom I dearly love, Charles Quarles, who's a professor at Southeastern now, and he told the story while he was pastoring here in Louisiana that he would go out and do visitation. And he would go, and he would go to all of the different people that had visited the church in order to do evangelism. And he went to one home of a, of a person that he had tried before but hadn't got a hold of. And he went to the door. It was, a, it was a mobile trailer kind of set up. And so he went to it. He knocked on the door, and no one answered. The car was in the driveway. He figured someone was there, but they just didn't want to talk. And he began to walk away. But the Spirit of God pierced his heart and said, beat on the door again. And he wrestled there in the driveway. What, what am I, you know, I don't want to harass these people. Knock on the door again. And so he went to the door and he began knocking again. And he stopped. And the Spirit of God is just impressing on him. Knock again. And he just keeps knocking and knocking and knocking. And what he didn't know is there was a wife on the floor ready to slit her wrist in the kitchen because the husband had just peeled out of the driveway, said, I'm not coming back, and she was at a point of taking her life, and she had just screamed out to God, God, if you care, and then the door started knocking. And she said, if you had not kept knocking, I might have taken my life. Don't miss the significance of moments like those, that when the Spirit of Christ puts a name on your mind of someone to reach out to, maybe in your class, maybe just someone you know from the section you sit in, we all end up sitting in the same sections most of the time. What if we, in those moments when a name came to mind, we called them and we kept calling them and we kept reaching out to them and that was the very way that the Spirit of God was saving them and bringing them back into the family of God so that they would not believe the lie of the evil one and, and harm themselves. Have a conversation, she says. Determine the severity of the crisis and perhaps take intervention and then ask for help. You know, we don't have to do it alone. There's experts in these fields. We don't have to walk alone. But if you're here today, I just wanna say to you, if you have been contemplating self-harm, then please, I invite you, come and talk to myself, talk to a friend here in the church, but please talk to someone. Just let it be known. I know there's shame with that, but Satan wants you to remain in shame and to hide in that crisis that you're in. But I encourage you, we love you. We are here for you. Do not suffer silently. We will walk with you. This is the word of the Lord, giving living hope to those that in Peter's day were living in darkness and were considering self-harm as a solution, non-existence as a solution. But he says, we have living hope. But then he says, not only do we have living hope, we've also been brought into an inheritance. And in our English translation, it's, it's different words, but in the Greek, it's three words that begin with the letter A. Peter was a good preacher. He knew how to find a letter and stick with it. But he says, you, he said, in, into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept for you in heaven. An inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. You see, when we think about this, this idea of what we receive as the people of God, we look back across the span of God's word and we see the significance of different aspects. And we see them kind of materialized throughout the rest of 1 Peter. But this idea that 
an inheritance would often include land, a new land. It would include possibly even a new citizenship. If you were being brought in by adoption into a family, you were literally receiving all of the aspects of that family, including their citizenship, and a new family itself. You were, all of these things were happening to you many times in an inheritance. And so for us, these aspects are especially keen as believers. And in Peter's day, there were those that literally were losing land. They were literally losing citizenship and they were literally losing family members and even their own lives. So this message of an inheritance that awaits them stored in heaven ushers us back into the words of Jesus. When he spoke in the Sermon on the Mount, he said this, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves don't break in and steal for where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. You see, Peter would have been in the audience that day when he heard Jesus speak those words. And so it's very likely that those ideas were still playing into his writing right here where he understands the significance of us storing up treasure in heaven. You see, the believers in Acts chapter four were storing up their treasure in heaven as they willingly and joyfully sold land. They were communicating, this land is not my inheritance. So I can part with land here today for the sake of meeting urgent physical and spiritual needs in the body of Christ, because this isn't the land that I've been promised. There's a future land that will be given, a new heaven and a new earth. In Philippians chapter three, Paul recalls his citizenship. This idea that he was born a Jew, born in the, in the tribe of Benjamin, a Pharisee in his education, all of these things, these accolades that would have established him as prominent among his people. But then he says, but, I can, but whatever gain I had in all of this standing, I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. In other words, he's giving up this idea of citizenship in this way in order for citizenship in this way. And in Ephesians chapter two, Paul clearly declares that the dividing wall that once separated the people of God, Jews and Gentiles, now no longer exists. We are one family with one father, with one spirit, with one Lord, one baptism. I mean, there's this incredible reality that awaits us of a promise that's being stored up in heaven that will be fully revealed in the day of Christ. A whole new existence that fits with our new birth. Our new birth will be fully experienced in that day as we experience all of the inheritance that awaits us in heaven. It'll find this beautiful coalescence where it all comes together, the beautiful picture that is ours in Christ will find its fullness. But here we wait, here we long, here, we look to the passage where it says, you are being guarded by God's power through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Now we read that and we think, ah, oh, it doesn't help today. Sounds good for one day. And because I think so much of our culture today is influenced by a message of death, we just see death as our final exit. We're like, man, just bring me death. Death is my way out up to heaven where then I get all of the good things, Chad, that you're talking about. But that's not what Peter says. 
You see, when Peter refers to the last time, it's obvious from this text and others that he is not talking about when you die. He is talking about a time to come when Jesus will reappear. He's not just communicating about your last time in some individualistic term, your last day. He's talking about a last day, the day of the Lord. And this is obvious from this text and other texts that we read throughout the New Testament, that we are a people longing for a certain day, a date of which we do not know, when Christ will reappear and everything will be restored. But we say, how does this help today? How does casting this portrait of what it will be like then help us today with the struggle? Well, there was a day when a black American stood on the steps in Washington, D.C., and painted a picture for a nation to consider about what it would look like one day. His name was Martin Luther King Jr. And he spoke this, I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream, I have a dream that one day in Alabama with its vicious racists, with its governor having his lips dripping with the words of interposition and nullification, one day right there in Alabama, little black boys and black girls will be able to join hands with little white boys and white girls as sisters and brothers. You see, when Martin Luther King spoke those words, you couldn't find that place in America, especially in the South. That didn't exist. He was painting a portrait to a people who were suffering under the weight of racism and segregation. But there he was speaking of a future day. And because of the portrait he painted of a future day where children would enjoy relationship with one another and would not look at the skin color as what separates them, but instead would assess character, instead would have relationship with one another. And can I tell you, and when you look at this church, that's exactly what you see. Boys and girls, regardless of skin color, knowing each other as friends and as brothers and sisters in Christ. And you see that with adults in this church. But there was a day when that was not the case at this church or any other church in Louisiana, any other church in Mississippi or Alabama or Georgia. But many times it's the portrait of what will be that gives us perseverance in the fight. It's the portrait of what will be that gives us the ability to stand when we are beaten down. And brothers and sisters, if we can learn anything from the civil rights movement, it's the power of the word to cast a portrait before the people, and before especially the people of God in order to allow perseverance in faith. Perseverance through difficulty perseverance that Peter was trying to give to the people of God, reminding them that God will guard you. Does that mean that they wouldn't suffer? No, but God will guard you. Does that mean that I won't ever go through sickness or difficulty? No, but God will guard you with his power through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed at the last time. And so we wait. So we wait, but we don't wait as those who have no hope. No, we have a living hope. We don't wait as those who are just waiting to enter into a, a non-existence. No, we are those waiting to enter into an inheritance, 
a new family fully revealed, every nation, tribe, and tongue gathered around the throne and worshiping the lamb that was slain for us, celebrating forever his resurrection and defeat over sin and over death. But today, the question that really comes to meet us squarely in this moment, and perhaps if you're a guest here today and just kind of considering this message of the Bible, then the question falls to you much like it did to Nicodemus in Jesus' life, where God says to you right now, you must be born again. And you may say, I don't understand. I mean, can I enter my mother's womb again? I mean, like, what are we talking about? Nicodemus asked the exact same question. And Jesus said to him, you don't need that sort of second birth. You need a second birth, essentially, that comes from God a work that only God can do in your heart to change you. And that new birth that he gives you is so exceptional, it's so real, it is so transformational that it will be as though you have entered into an entirely new existence. Every human relationship will be different. Every situation that you come into will be different. You will feel like there's literally someone inside of you taking the will of your life and beginning to steer you in directions you formerly did not go. And that is the sanctifying work of his Holy Spirit. So have you been born again? The Bible's so clear that the way to be born again is to trust in what this passage has proclaimed. That while we are in brokenness, and while that was not God's design and sin has gotten us right where we are, the only way back to God is to believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins, that he was buried, and that he rose again on the third day. That's what's proclaimed in this text. He was seen by many witnesses, ascended into heaven, and one day our hope, our living hope, is that he will return. The Bible says that if you'll be honest with God about your sin, confessing your sin to him and asking him to forgive you and turn and give your life to Jesus, you will be saved. You become a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come, and you begin to grow into the image. You were created, the image of God, bearing the image of Christ in your life because of the image that his spirit produces in you to look like Christ. I'm gonna invite for everyone to stand in this moment, and we're gonna sing a song of response, but if you're here today, and what you need to experience today, more than anything, is new birth. And Pastor Corey's gonna be standing over here. I'm gonna be standing right here. We would love to pray with you as you trust Christ. For the rest of us today, I encourage you, fully worship, fully experience the new birth that he has given to you. Fully proclaim his salvation. Let's sing together.